Ezra chapter 2. There's a temptation when you come to passages like this one that are dominated by names to do two things. One thing here. Um, one thing is to skip it because it's a bunch of names and they're Hebrew names and they're hard to say anyway. So one thing that a lot of people will do is skip things like this. Um, another thing is to overdo it. Look for numbers and numerologies and myths and genealogies and go through all these various things and try to Try to overdo it and, and look for hidden, hidden meanings. Um, well, we don't want to do either of those. We want to stay right in the middle. We don't want to skip it because it's in the Word of God. It's in the, in the Word of God for a reason. I didn't want to tack it on to something else because it's in the Word of God. It's in the Word of God for a reason. It's a long passage. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to just throw it on to the end of something. And um, we also didn't want to overdo it and and just examine every name and every word, because all Hebrew names tend to have meaning to them. <coughs> and you can extrapolate a lot from Hebrew words and Hebrew names. So I've done my best to listen to the Spirit of the Lord and give you a middle way uh, as we study this. I hope that it will be a... Uh, my, my aim here is that this will be a picture for us of what we will one day have, of what we will one day see, that this will be a shadow of that which is to come. So let's dive right in. We're going to read a lot here, uh, all of chapter 2, Ezra chapter 2. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. <clears throat> they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, <clears throat> Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baanai. Baanai. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shef, I'm going to mess up a lot of these names, Shephatai, 372, the sons of Era, 775, the sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zetu, 945, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Bani, 642, the sons of Bibai, 623, the sons of Asgod, 1,222, the sons of Adonakim, 666, the sons of Bigvi, 2,056, the sons of Adin, 454, the sons of Otter, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Bizai, 323, the sons of Jorah, 112, the sons of Hashem, 223, the sons of Gibar, 
95, the sons of Bethlehem. Now, I want you just to pause and note the next set of names are going to be geographical locations. They're going to say sons of, but they're going to be geographical locations. All the ones that follow from this point until I tell you is going to be geographical locations. The sons of Bethlehem, 123, the men of Natofa, 56. The men of Anatoth, that's Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, the big city that was cursed in Jeremiah. Uh, the 128, the sons of Asman, Asmazbeth, 42. The sons of Kirith-Arim, uh, Chipra and Biroth, 743. The sons of Rama and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and I. Remember I and Bethel, that's between the two places where Abraham put the altar. So you've got I, the city of ruin, that's what that means. And Bethel, the house of God. Abraham put an altar right in the middle of the two. This is a very historic location between the two of them. The fact that they're put together should key in our brains. Oh, it worked. God is connected. Ruins and the house of God. 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Migbesh, 156. And sons of other of the other Elam, I love that, 1,254 being named John, having another one, like that makes sense to me. The other Elam, not the first John, the second John, right? Um, so let's see, where were we? Uh, the sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, Ono, 725, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Sina, 3,630. Now we move to the temple servants, the priests, the sons of Jedediah, the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Emer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adar, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatitai, the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Has, Hasufa, the sons of Tab, Tabaoth, the sons of Kuros, the sons of, Shia, of Siha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lab, Lebna, Labana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Sham. Shamlai, the sons of Hanai, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gihar, the sons of Rehai, the, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gizam, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pisa, the sons of Beza, the sons of Asna, the sons of Miena, Mi, that one, the sons of Nephism, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hak. Ufa, the sons of Hes, of Harar, Harhar, the sons of Basloth, the sons of 
Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hadapha. I just wanted to read all of those names out loud because I want you to understand the, the value of these names. All of these people are included, and every name gets mentioned. I don't know. We don't know who any of these people are. They're not famous, but their names get included. So as we keep reading, the sons of Solomon's servants. This is the next set of people. Sons of Solomon's servants. The sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophareth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Ja'ala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Poker, pretty sure that's Pochacher Sirharabam, um, the sons of Ami, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants, 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Melah. Now, this is, these are Babylonian cities, so they come out of these cities, and they're about to list off all the people who come from these cities who have no registration or genealogy to speak of. The following were those who came up out of Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emer. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descendant, or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Delai, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda. 652. Also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habaiah, the sons of Hakoz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gidite, the Gileadite, uh, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among the enrolled in the genealogies, but were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and the Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers, their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, a hundred priests' garments. Now the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Now, that was a lot of names. Don't worry, we're not going to go back through all the names again. Uh, but that was a good start. We've got an understanding of the text. I just want to point out to you first the warnings that are in this text. Remember that as we read through Ezra and Nehemiah, there's going to be constant where you read these things that sound really triumphant, that sound really great. There's going to be these warnings that show up, these little warnings, these small things that pop up 
that show you that this is not the completion of the kingdom. Indeed, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah ends with Zerubbabel's reforms failing, Ezra's reforms failing, and Nehemiah's reforms failing. And the kingdom is rebuilt, the walls are rebuilt, the temple is rebuilt, the priesthood is restored, everything is restored, and they lack the prophet-priest-king that needs to come. And they require and need Jesus for the worship of God. That's the whole point of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. No matter how great our systems are, we require Jesus. We need Him for salvation. So, here's some of the warnings. The first one, note, at the very beginning, they're identified as the people of the province. They're not the people of the kingdom. They're not the people of the kingdom of God. They're the province. Matthew Henry points out in his, in his unabridged commentary that, that this is an indication of what happens when a nation slides into sin. They lose their exalted status as kingdom and become province. The more that a nation or a people or even a person submits to sin, the more things begin to rule over them rather than them living freely under the rule of God. Rather than them living freely under the rule of God, they become subservient to that which is around them. The same thing happens to us in our lives when we allow sin to corrupt and stay in our lives and we don't war against it. When we don't make war against sin, we end up letting sin take little bits of us and we end up becoming uh, subservient. We're no longer a kingdom of priests, the royal priesthood set apart for the kingdom of God, but we end up acting as those who are in a province ruled by a sin. So kill sin while it's in you. Either kill sin or it will be killing you, that great John Owen quote. We war against sin. And why do we war against sin? Because we've been given the victory already. We've been given the victory in Jesus Christ already. So these people have become a province, uh, no longer a kingdom. They are people of the province. Uh, Second, here's another one. There's only 11 leaders mentioned. And that first list there, (coughs) in in verse 2, You've got 11 guys mentioned. There's only 11. That's on purpose. Nehemiah mentions later 12. In Nehemiah 7, you've got 12. But in Ezra, there's something the author is doing, which is giving you, they're just not quite there. They're just not quite there. They've got 11 out of 12. Nehemiah is 12. In the book of Revelation, remember that there's 24 elders that fall down among the throne of God and throw their crowns before. That's not on accident. In this book, you've got 24, I mean, in Chronicles, you've got 24 sets of singers. You've got 24 families of singers. 24 families of priests worship, worshiping the Lord. It's not an accident. This is the worship of the Lord that is mimicked in, uh, in Revelation. Here, it's inadequate. It's just shy of what they should have. It's just shy of what they should have. Second, verse 6. Pahath Moab means governor of Moab. That should key in in your brain too. For some reason, Moab, a foreign nation, has a descendant that's been included into the genealogy that is allowed and that is, uh, that is uh, somehow a, a part of the kingdom. And for Ezra, this is going to be a problem later when he starts to demand purity of line. There's going to be a problem here. Now for us, 
Pahath Moab being included is great. Because I don't know of any of you that are Jewish. So the idea that God would allow a foreigner into the kingdom of God and to restore the temple of God, to be one of the ones who's come back to restore the temple of God, I'm all for that. Because that means I get included. And that means the Isaiah prophecy of being grafted in and the Ezekiel prophecy of all the birds of different kinds flocking to the same tree, those things include me. And so I'm all for it. But for, the, for Ezra, this is going to be a headache later on. Now, the second one, the next one here, is only four of the 24 family groups of priests are listed in chapter 36, I mean in verse 36 through 39. Four out of 24 family groups. They were designated by David in 1 Chronicles that they were supposed to be, <coughs> that there were supposed to be 24 of them. Pardon me. <coughs> there were supposed to be 24 of them. And there's only four listed. So this is a small portion of the priests that are coming back. This is a small portion. Now in the New Testament, these 24, they restore the 24 priests uh, in the New Testament, but they restore them out of these four names. The, four, the 24 different groups of Pharisees and Sadducees come out of these names, out of these four names. The last one here is that some could not identify their lineage in verses 62 and 63. And you saw it there. What we have is an unresolved statement. The governor says they don't get to partake of the holy things until a priest can be consulted for the Urim and the Thummim, which is they were these two stones that were in uh, the high priest's robe, he had this uh, chest piece that had all the 12 tribes of, Jude, of Israel on it. And then inside there were two uh, stones and they would take those stones out. And they'd pray to the Lord and they'd dump the stones and they'd get a yes or no from the stones. It was always a yes or no question. It's not the same as divination, just in case you're wondering. We can talk about that at lunch. That's a really big topic. Um, but the, uh, the idea here is that they sought the Lord's face for the answer and... They uh, found the thing. Now, they, there were people who could not identify their lineage and they were not per- permitted to participate in the holiest things because they did not have a high priest to consult the Urim and the Thummim. This is, this is the desperate... Uh, they get to go. They get to be there. But they don't get to participate without a high priest. I mean, we can't go much further than to say what a joy it is that we have a great high priest who has gone before us and allows us to participate in the holiest of things, who has torn the veil of the Holy of Holies, and we get to enter in, and we get to talk to God, and we get to participate in the holiest things. You get to feast at the table of God now, and you are brought back from exile to see the Lord God Most High brought out of your depravity and wickedness into holiness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I'm getting way ahead of myself, but we get to see it because Jesus has done it for us. They were desperate. And they couldn't prove their lineage or their worth or their authority. So they got to go and attend and build the walls and build the temple, but they don't get to participate in the worship. As priests, they don't get to do the holiest of things until somebody comes along to give them access. And that somebody is Jesus who came along to give us all access. 
How beautiful is this? <laughs> this need for pedigree becomes a problem in the New Testament. Jesus takes your need for pedigree and dumps it and says, it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or where you've come from, I'm your pedigree. I adopt you. God adopts you as his own and takes you into his kingdom. God gives you the pedigree. It doesn't matter your background. In John 8, Jesus argues with the Pharisees about their pedigree. They say, we, you know, we are the children of Abraham. And Jesus goes, if you knew Abraham, you'd know me. You don't know him. And then uh, we, we are reminded in Philippians and in Galatians that Paul's pedigree matters nothing in the kingdom. That it is God that matters. Jesus moving that matters. Jesus saves. We all have a great high priest. So let's look at the people listed here. The first grouping is the leaders, right? We've got 11 of them. Now, it's unlikely that this is the same uh, Nehemiah, Mordecai. I know that those names probably jumped out at you. Mordecai and Nehemiah, those are probably not the same Nehemiah and Mordecai as the ones that show up later. Um, this is probably not Esther's uncle, and most likely it's not Nehemiah the governor. This is not, or the cupbearer. Um, and I say that because there's a 60-year gap between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Ezra, and Nehemiah doesn't show up until Ezra's done, uh, until after Ezra. So I'm just thinking that maybe the timeline uh, dictates that this is not the same Nehemiah. Could be, uh, but it's unlikely, and it's unlikely that this is the same Mordecai. So you've got these 11 guys that show up, and then you've got Sariah there, uh, who is marked out as Ezra's father um, in chapter 7. So Ezra 7.1 says that this this, this could be the same guy. This could be Ezra's father. Now, we're not told that it's Ezra's father, but it probably is. Now, these guys, uh, these 11, are leading the group. And the, at the head of them is Zerubbabel. And remember, last week, we talked about how Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He is a descendant of Judah. He is the kingly line that is leading the people. <laughs> He's mentioned first because this is going to be a political uh, reform. He's coming in to a political reform. So here, here they come with him and the 10 other guys ready to go. Now, they're named by clan in verses 3 through 20. This is the second group that's named. So first you've got these leaders in verse 2. Then you've got the clans in verses 3 through 20. Just note a couple things. One, they, they're called the people of Israel. This is pointing to the fact that this is God's covenant promise. This is God's covenant promise being fulfilled. God promised them that they would be moved back into the land. That 70 years of exile would end and then they would move back into the land. So this is the people of Israel emphasizing that God is keeping his promise. We can trust in God's promises. We can trust in what the Lord says. He says in his word it's going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 years. If he says in his word that he's going to bring people back to a land, he's going to bring people back to a land. If he says in his word that he's conquered sin on your behalf, then he has conquered sin on your behalf. If he says in his word that you will be resurrected to new life, then you will be resurrected to new life. He is faithful to complete his promises. When, when here, when they're referred to as the sons of Israel, the people of Israel, they are 
we are being reminded that they are fulfillment of the promise of God. The list of names calls us also to remember that God knows the names of His chosen people and bringing them back into the land is not too hard for Him. God knows the names of His chosen people. He knows the names of those He has, he has saved. He knows the names of the people that He has rescued. Indeed, He knows your name. He knows your name. He knows my name. And He promises us a better land than this one. He promises us a better land than this one. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, this is even, uh, 11, verse 16, this is even mentioned that they looked forward to something greater than this earthly kingdom in Israel. Even the people of Israel were looking forward to a greater kingdom that was to come, the one that we get to see in fullness and in truth. This is God knows His people. He knows His promises. He's going to keep them. He knows your name. He knows the name of the people He has chosen. Bringing the people back into the land shows His commitment to redeem them from the earth, from sin and judgment, and establish His divine and eternal kingdom. He has a commitment to do that and He will fulfill it. We can trust the promises of God that no matter how bad this earth gets, no matter how wicked things seem on this earth, no matter how much things seem to be falling apart, the Lord has a purpose and plan and that purpose and plan will result in a heavenly kingdom that will exist for eternity. The kingdom of God of which you and I are invited to be a part in Jesus Christ. We are adopted and grafted in. So we've got God knowing the names of His people and the people of Israel reminding us of the promise of God. We've got the people listed by geographical locations. These are people who could only identify themselves by property, by where they were. These are people who could only identify themselves by property and where they were. Other, the, the first list of people, they had names. And I don't know if you've ever, uh, if names matter. When I was little, I told everybody, when I was, you know, this, this little... Anybody who met me, I told them, my name is John Novus Elkins. And they would say, oh, John, what a sweet boy. I go, no, John Novus Elkins. And I was very stickler about it. People would meet me in the grocery store and I'd go, they'd be like, what's, this is a sweet boy, what's his name? John Novus Elkins. And they'd go, oh, John? No, John Novus Elkins. You had to say the whole thing. I was very particular. I was very small. I was very particular. Uh, most of us have had kids and we know that that's how children are. And so we were, I was very particular. And John Novus Elkins was very important to me. Novus was my grandfather's name. Grandfather was a great man. Very rough, strong man, but a very great man. And he w- was Novus. Novus Noble Elkins. My, uh, my dad's name, Elkins, you know, last name Elkins, Thomas Edward Elkins. Like, I had this pedigree that I thought was very important that I wanted people to know I am descended from Novus and Thomas Elkins. I am, I am that boy. I am that one, right? I had, I had this pedigree that I could count on. Well, these people don't have that. These people couldn't point to their father's, 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 father and go, see, I'm from this line or I'm from this thing. Instead, they were like, I grew up in Bethlehem. I grew up, you know, I grew up in Sweeney. Um, just Bethlehem, about the size of Sweeney. I grew up in Sweeney, right? Like they had, they had this, this, uh, this attachment to land and place. 
but they didn't have a pedigree. They, didn't, they couldn't pull out sheets of paper and give you their list. They could tell you where they were from, but that was about it. Uh, you know, my family's from this area of the, of the world. I, you know, and so some people have these pedigrees that go back thousands of years and they, they've, got the, you know, they've got the family tree timeline things. They did the uh, Ancestry.com, whatever nonsense, which I think, by the way, is mostly made up, so don't do it. Um, the, but like they did all that, and they followed through all these things, and they've gotten names and histories and, and backgrounds, and there's usually some famous person somewhere down the line, like uh, William Coper or something, and they've got, they've got these names, and they go, look, I'm from this one. And then you've got people who are like me who are like, ah, you know, my family's from Black Dutch Germany, and I know that, and I know that my dad has some English in him. And there's some, you know, there's some other, uh, other ancestry. And then you've got people who are like, ah, we're from Texas. You know, I, my family's from Texas. That's, that's where I'm from. And so you've got people who identify themselves by land. You've got people who identify themselves by pedigree. And the people who identify themselves by pedigree are real proud. And they come and they're like, look at our pedigree. Look at all these things. Look at where we're from. Now, the important thing for us to grasp here is that these people don't have that pedigree, but they know where they're from. And they get included. And they get included. They're in the list. They get included. They're in the list. Most likely these are people who only owned property and they didn't know their genealogy. They were probably less aristocratic. Probably less affluent. You see, God does not forsake His promises even to those who can't remember their names. God does not forsake His promises even to those who can't remember who came before them or why they get in. He doesn't forsake his promises. There's one name that matters, Jesus Christ, that gives you everlasting life. And it's the only name that you need to know. And you don't have to point back to your history. You don't have to point back to the church your grandparents, grandparents, grandparents grew up in. You don't have to point back to a pedigree. You can simply say, I am in the kingdom of heaven. I belong here. Your location does it, and they're included. Another point to make in this one is don't despise small beginnings. Just an application point for us. Don't despise small beginnings. The, the list starts with Bethlehem. Small beginning. Small town. Small town in the middle of nowhere, outside of Jerusalem, but where the King of Glory is going to come. He's going to come from this small, insignificant town, Bethlehem, Ephratha, uh, how you are so small among your brothers. And it's small. Look at how many people come from Bethlehem. 123. It's not a massive amount. But they're there. And they're included. Indeed, you don't have to point to a pedigree. God will redeem those. Don't despise small beginnings. Even though this band of returning refugees is relatively unnoticed in the world. This band of returning refugees is relatively unnoticed in the world. They are the center of where salvation is going to come from. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 says salvation comes from the Jew first then to the Gentile. They are the center of God's redemptive plan here. And Jesus will come from them. And Jesus comes out of them to save us all. So it is with the church, by the way. Don't despise our small beginnings, our small moments. Though we are unnoticed in the world today, 
Though we are often unnoticed in the world today, the church is the center of God's mission on this earth. We are the people by which He spreads the gospel. We are the people by which He expresses His love. Matthew, just for a couple references for you to look up later, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, and Ephesians 3, 10 and verse 21, all speak of the church as God's uh, providential working in the kingdom to bring about His kingdom. Now we have more lists to go. We've got people, so we had the leaders and the people named by clan, then we've got the people named by geographical locations, and then we have, uh, we have the people listed, the temple servants. So we've got the temple servants in verses 36 through 58, and that begins with the priests. And as we already said, uh, the first set, the verses 36 through 39, only four out of 24 families are returning. Only four out of 24 families. Now, why is that? And I just, there's an application for us to draw here. There were people in Babylon, in particular priests, who had probably gotten comfortable. Who had probably gotten comfortable with where they lived. They had jobs, they had houses, they had land, they had property in Babylon. They were living in, well, what became, what's Persia at this time. But they, they were living in relative peace. Cyrus is a good king. They don't have a lot of persecution they get to go to synagogue they get to lead people and more than likely the priests who lived in babylon had property if they move back to jerusalem you need to understand that they are surrendering property they don't get an inheritance if they're priests if they're priests they have to rely on the congregation to provide for them forever now it's a beautiful system in that they serve the people and the people provide for them It's a beautiful system, but it is a system of surrender to Yahweh as provider. So these brothers, four of the 24 family groups returned that are designated in Chronicles 24. They are people, this is one-tenth of the total of priests, by the way. Uh, The temple servants who returned is one-tenth of the total number that was estimated to be around. Now, they, uh, they would probably not want to return because they've got property in Babylon. Maybe. That's speculating, but it, it's probable. The other thing that could be happening here is that only four of them felt inspired by the Lord to go. Only four of the families felt inspired by the Lord. Note two things. One, there's no begrudging of the ones who stayed. There's no begrudging of the ones who stayed. Nowhere in this text does it out everybody else and go, you guys are lazy bums who didn't come to help us build the temple. That doesn't happen. No. Because there's one singular focus. They are focused on the mission of rebuilding the temple of God. They are not concerned with everybody else. They're concerned about themselves. So the four who come, want their names are, are listed and they get to go and build the temple of God. And that's the way that they're thinking of it. They get to go and build the temple of God. Brothers and sisters, we pray for other churches here all the time. We do not envy other churches. We do not envy other churches. We do not besmirch other churches what they do. They feel convicted that they want to do something a certain way. Fine. We might completely disagree with their methodology. We might adamantly disagree with their methodology. And in person, if I'm talking to them, I will express that but in love and charity recognizing that it's not my church 
It's not my local body. It's my church in that we're part of the universal church. But I don't begrudge them when they feel like they need something that I don't feel like we need. No, we, we keep our minds on the mission of developing the worship of Jesus Christ. We keep our minds on the mission of the gospel in front of us. We don't worry about everybody else doing things the way we think they should be done. And yes, I am very opinionated, and I think that it should be done a certain way all the time. But I recognize that I am very opinionated, and I think it should be done a certain way all the time. And that I am not Jesus. And Jesus might be working in them slightly differently than he's working in me to lead me to do something different. And that's okay. Because our goal is to build the kingdom of God and to build the kingdom of heaven. And I, however that gets done, I'm for it. And we are for it. So we have come to build the kingdom of heaven. We've got these leaders that come, only four out of 24 families. Then you've got the Levites listed in verses 40 through 42. Now there's fewer Levites than priests, which is weird, because there should be more Levites than there should be priests. This is a weird thing. In Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 26, you see that there's more uh, Levites than priests, but there's fewer Levites than priests here. Later on, Ezra uh, will only be able to get 38 Levites to go later on in the book. He's going to go back in Ezra uh, chapter 7, and he's going to go back and he's going to get uh, 38 families, 38 Levites to go. He can't get more than that. There's less Levites coming. And again, this is the same thing. They probably had land in exile. They wanted to stay there. But in Israel, they would not have it. So Luke chapter 14, verse 26, gives us a little note here. Um, If they were staying because of the land, remember that this is a, a list of names of people who are going into the kingdom of God, who are going to rebuild the kingdom of God. This is a list of names. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, what's Jesus say? He says, unless you are willing to hate your father and mother, you have no part in the kingdom. Unless you're willing to give up everything for the kingdom of God, you have no part with me. When the rich man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's Jesus key in on? All your possessions. Give them all away. Give away everything and then come follow me. And the rich man goes away sad. Why? Because his possessions were great. Because his possessions were great. He saw his possessions as greater than the kingdom of God. So here, there's a lesson for us in these Levites not showing up. The lesson is that we must surrender all for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is pivotal. And we must surrender all to achieve it, to have it. The... The groups are divided. You've got verse 40, which are the the people who are the assistants in the temple. So in 40, it gives you these sons named. They're the Levites. And then it says the singers in verse 41, who are all the sons of Asaph. Right? This is is great. You've got the ones who assisted in the priestly functions, the Levites. Then you've got the singers in verse 41. You need to think of the singers as people like timekeepers. Like they blew the trumpet at the right time. They played music at the right time. <coughs> they, they were the ones who were calling people to worship. They were the ones who were bringing people into the worship center. They were the ones who were leading people in worship. So that's what you have. You have 
these priestly guys that are helping with the priests. You've got the singers who are leading worship and singing. And then you've got the third group, verse 42, who are sort of a police or temple guard. The ones who are the gatekeepers. That's kind of the police of the temple. They're the ones who are walking around making sure nobody's stealing anything. They're the ones who are (coughs) checking to make sure people aren't breaking things and they're kind of keeping order. That's who the gatekeepers are. So you've got that group listed here in verses 40 through 42. Then the next set of temple servants is 43 through 50. And these are those who perform the more mundane tasks. So in 43, it says the temple servants then lists off a slew of names. And they're the ones who perform (coughs) a more mundane task, the things like making sure the tables are set, making sure that things are put up in the right place, uh, making sure that the when they have a feast that they've got all the wine that they need, making sure, keeping inventory. These are those brothers and sisters. Now, I just want to remind you, they're included in the list. They're included in the list of people who are returning to the kingdom of God to rebuild the temple. They're included in the list of heroes. That's what this list is. They're included in the list of people who are returning to restore the kingdom. I want to remind you of that every time we look at a genealogy like this, these are people who are included in the list. So this group, this group of temple servants who probably felt like they weren't important, who probably felt like their job could be done by any volunteer, they were included in the list and given a specific role to play in the list. Your mundane tasks as a person in the kingdom of God matter. They are important. That's what we see in the book of Acts, by the way. When Acts, the apostles get together and say, we can't keep, uh, we can't keep tabs on all the widows. We need, some, we need seven men who can set up tables and be, uh, make sure that the widows are getting fed fairly. We can't keep doing this. We need to focus on praying and teaching. And they assign deacons. Deacon means table waiter. That's what it is. It's a servant, a dust server, like somebody who serves from the bottom. But if you'll notice in the book of Acts, they establish deacons, and the rest of the book of Acts is about the deacons and Paul. And the elders suddenly drop out of the picture. You got Peter and John showing up once or twice in relation to deacons, and then you got Paul and the deacons. You got all the servants. Your mundane tasks for the kingdom of God, no matter how small you think they are, no matter how insignificant you think they are, no matter how little you think they do, they mean more in the kingdom of God than you could possibly imagine. These people are included in the list. These people are included in the list. Then you've got the sons of Solomon's servants. After that group in, 50, in 55, you've got the sons of Solomon's servants. These are secular city, city duties. These are, these are inspectors and builders and people who would be checking for uh, various uh, code things, making sure everything's up to code. Um, like these are the people who would make sure that you didn't have candelabras too close to the ceiling, the wooden ceiling. Like that's, that's who these guys are. They're the secular builders. The sons of Solomon's servants are the ones who are going to be uh, inspecting everything and kind of making sure they're craftsmen. They're making sure, they're making sure the stones are cut the right way. Like these are, these are those guys. They're, they're construction workers. They're inspectors. They're, some of them are bureaucrats because... I don't know why, but bureaucrats always show up. So some of them are bureaucrats. And they're, 
They're the people who are making sure that everything gets done correctly. These are, these are the, the temple servants and Solomon's descendants. And they would have been used for more secular things. And then you've got those who come from Babylon with no legitimate legal claim. I love that this group is included. I love that this group is included because this group tells me that I can get into the kingdom. I have no legitimate pedigree or legal claim. I simply have to wait for a high priest. I simply have to wait for a high priest. I have no legitimate legal claim. I can't show documentation. I can't be like, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin from the tribe of Judah. I can't do that. I have to rest on the grace of God in the high priest who gives me life. I, I am that one. You are that one. We are that one. And we get to be part of the kingdom because we have a great high priest who has gone before us and made the atoning sacrifice. So I love this list of others, the others who are not legitimized. And, and they must have been, it must have been such a weight, right? It must have been such a pain for them to show up be interested in working in the kingdom and in serving in the kingdom and they just want to help rebuild the temple. They're there. They've brought their money. They've, they've sacrificed their time. They've moved across the known world to get to this place and they've come and they want to serve at the temple of God and they are told, you have to wait for a high priest. And how their hearts must have dropped. How their hearts must have dropped when they said, but I am a I'm a priest. I know my role. I know what I'm supposed to do. And the, and the governor goes, you can't do it until we get a high priest to consult. And they have to wait. How their hearts must have dropped. And how ours must soar when we realize that Jesus Christ has come and our great high priest has come. And we don't have to wait to partake of the holy things of God. We don't have to wait to see the measure and worth of God. We don't have to wait for those things. No, we get to go into the kingdom with all our free will offerings and hand them before the Lord and give them to Him open-handed. Verse 68, some of, the household, some of the heads of the families when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem made offerings, free will offerings to the house of God. Free will offerings, by the way, is just a way of saying offerings that are not prescribed in the law. So he gives them free will offerings. So they're handing offerings over to the house of God to erect it on its site. And they begin the building process. And they're all there. And then here in verse 70, it says, Now the priests and Levites and some of the people, (coughs) the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, lived in their towns and all the rest in Israel and their towns. We have a greater kingdom than this one. And I can't help but end with this passage. Ephesians chapter 12, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who you were. That's who we were. We were aliens. We were separated from God. We, we didn't get to partake of the covenants. We didn't get salvation. We didn't get these things. But now, 
in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the command of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body <coughs> through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We get to be a part of the kingdom of God because of the grace of Jesus Christ, the great high priest who has covered over all our flawed lineage, all our flawed locations, all of our sin, who has taken all of it, has destroyed sin itself and has given us life and life eternal. And we are built into the kingdom of God in which God dwells and lives. And we don't have to wait like Ezra and Nehemiah did. We don't have to wait like them. We can repent and trust in Jesus and believe in Him now and live life to the full now. And how beautiful this is. Oh, that we would rejoice in the kingdom of God. Father, we pray that You would be delighted in us as we delight in You. Lord, thank You.